Well, we are in Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6. We're closing in on the final chapters of this prophet. And I realized as I was studying that I haven't done a very good job of telling the outline and explaining where we're at. And I had mentioned in the first few chapters that there's three cycles in the book of Micah, and that cycle is the judgment, the salvation and redemption of Israel. And we're about to start our third one here in chapter 6. So chapters 1 and 2 is the first cycle. 3 through 5 was the second. And now we're starting chapters 6 and 7, the last cycle. And there's 19 distinct prophecies that Micah gives in his book. Now, I wanted to review a little bit since it's a nice time before we start off on this next section. In the last few chapters, we have seen future and present judgment on the nation of Israel, the things that are happening, why they're happening, how God is going to lead them into captivity. And we see historically they're in a 70-year captivity in Babylon that turns into Persia and how the Assyrians come into the north and they take Israel and we don't see them. The Babylonians take the south with Judah. We also saw these prophecies of the return of the nation of Israel into the promised land, prophesied 100 years before it actually happens. And we also saw a future redemption of Israel, something that we've seen in 1948, but we're also going to see in the last review, which is the millennial kingdom, that literal thousand-year reign of Christ when He comes Again, now all these things have been found in the first five chapters of the book of Micah, and they're going to be found here in chapters 6 and 7. I would argue, almost more importantly, though, is the personal application that we've been seeing in the last few chapters, that we shouldn't be surrounding ourselves with so-called false prophets. We shouldn't be self-centered and just looking to have ourselves be richer and healthier and fancier and yet still turning our eyes away from the Lord how we can be religious and not actually be walking or pleasing to God. We applied God's righteousness and also His grace. And we did that by looking at how the Lord's relationship with the nation of Israel is being developed here with Micah, the other prophets, and historically what was happening at that time. But the number one most important practical application we've seen and will continue to see is that in us dwells no good Thing, just like the nation of Israel, and that we are wholly reliant on the grace of God and His goodness. Now with that, let's open up in a word and prayer as we start this next cycle with Micah. Lord, we thank You so much for Your grace and Your mercy. We thank You that You are righteous, holy, and true. We pray that You would continue to teach us from Your Word, that we continue to grow in Your grace and in the understanding of what Your grace is. I thank you, Lord, that even here in Micah, with the coming judgment upon Israel, you show your love and your mercy and your grace in the midst of it. Help us to apply it to our own lives this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's read the first five verses together, shall we? Chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint. And you strong foundations of the earth, for the Lord has a complaint against His people, and He will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage, 
and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. Now, some of you, you've already kind of caught it. There's a courthouse scene here, and that's literally in the Hebrew what Micah's doing. Remember, Micah uses a lot of poetry and a lot of allegory in his prophecies, and he has set up the courtroom scene. The Lord is the judge here. Israel is on the stand. They're the defendant. And the Lord has called a witness, the mountains, the world, the neutral creation that is going to testify against Israel. And you see these words in here, plead your case, the Lord's complaint, he will contend. And that's in the Hebrew exactly what he's talking about. And the Lord says to them, says, calling in the first witness, the mountains, plead your case before the mountains, let the hills hear your voice. And the Lord's complaint is this, verse 3, what have I done to you and how have I wearied you? Testify against me. Israel is constantly over and over and over again in rebellion to God. And the Lord is giving some examples here. I delivered you from Egypt. I delivered you from slavery. I've given you prophets. I've given you uh, leaders like Moses, like Aaron, like Miriam. And then he even uses this weird reference in verse 5, Balak, king of Moab, and Balaam, the son of Beor. Why would he use that as a defense? Well, Balak had aligned himself with Balaam. Balaam's a traitor to Israel. He was an Israelite, and he just wanted money, and Balak was willing to pay whatever. And so Balaam goes to prophesy against the nation of Israel all the way back in the Old Testament. And when Balaam's about to speak these prophecies against Israel, the Lord won't even allow him to speak. He doesn't even allow the enemies of God to prophesy against his chosen people. And in doing so, God is saying, after all these things, how is it that you're still going to the false gods? How is it that you're still going to the world, that you're still constantly choosing things that are apart from me? And this theme is not unique to the book of Micah. Isaiah prophesies the same thing in a different way. He speaks of the Lord as being the planter, the vineyard owner, and Israel being the grapes, the vines. And in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 4, it says, What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? Everything that God has done. And he's only listing a few things. What about King Hezekiah? Recent to this time period, Hezekiah was a great king. Prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea. And the Lord's lifting them up and He's bringing these leaders, He's bringing these prophecies, He's constantly reaching out to Israel, He's protecting them, He's guiding them, He's leading them, and Israel over and over and over again, as we're learning on Wednesday nights on the book of Judges, is doing what is right in their own eyes. And the Lord is asking them, what more could I have done for you? Well, what is Israel going to say? What is their response? Oh, I'm so sorry, I want to repent. Wrong. Verse 6 and 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, you can tell I'm reading in a little angst into there because the response from Israel is like, what do you want from us? I mean, what more do you want from us? And the way I envision it is kind of like that teenager in the hallway yelling at the parents. Like, I'm an adult now. You can't talk to me like this. You know, the parents who built the house, gave them their clothes, built everything that they've ever had, keeps them safe, comforts them, encourages them, cries over them, laughs with them. And there that terrible child is just screaming in the hallway, I hate you. You're the worst. Well, that's what Israel is saying to the Lord. What do you want from us? If I gave you thousands of rams, would that be enough? Would that buy you off? 10,000 of rivers of oil. And if we just do some basic math, some translators say it's 6,000 rams. So if it was 6,000 rams and we sacrificed one ram a day, that would be 16 and a half years of offerings. And you can see Israel's like, well, is that enough for you? Is that going to buy you off? Unfortunately, there's far too many people that live this way with the Lord. They think that they're trying to pay Him off, buy Him off, make Him happy, do something to earn His grace. And this isn't even as dark as it gets here because in verse 7, Israel replies, Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? They're not speaking figuratively. You see, in the nation of Israel at that time, they had learned from the Ammonites to sacrifice their firstborn children in the arms of Molech. The idol worshipers, which had come from Ammonites, spread to Phoenicia, the Canaanites were doing it, and now the Israelites were doing it, were worshiping these false gods, and one of them included sacrificing their own children, which is an abomination. You see, in the Old Testament, it speaks about the Lord wanting to redeem the firstborn, that the Lord has purchased the firstborn. The firstborn belongs to Him. But Israel, looking to the world, is actually sacrificing them and killing them. This is an abomination. But here's something that's really interesting about the human heart and the heart of Israel. And I found it written perfectly in the commentary from Kenneth L. Barker when he said they would offer everything, even what God forbade, accepting only what alone He asked for, their heart, its love, and its obedience. You guys get what he's saying here? He's saying the nation of Israel would buy, give, sacrifice anything except for what God actually asked for. Except for what God actually asked for. Are you trying to buy off God today? You know, some people are trying to buy off God because they want to volunteer in worship or they want to volunteer in the children's ministry. Some people want to put it in the offering plate. Some people it's through giving. Some people... It's you're reading through the Bible or your church attendance, and you feel that if you just go to church enough times, God will be happy with you. Or if you go to a certain church with certain robes or certain men or certain people, that now God will be happy with you. And you're just living your life trying to buy Him off with everything except for what He actually wants. Isaiah would prophesy the same thing in chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. When he says, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. 
I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. I mean, if you want to drill down into what the Lord is prophesying there and speaking through Isaiah, He'd rather we just not do church. Rather, rather we just not fill these buildings up if we're not actually trying to serve Him and about Him. You no, know, if it's about us just paying Him off with our goods and services, He doesn't need any of it. Because remember, in us dwells no good thing. And left to ourselves, if you're trying to earn the favor of God, you're in the wrong place. There is no amount of money, there is no amount of prayer, there is no amount of alms or charity or service or study or wisdom that can buy off God. Let me rephrase it this way. There is no amount of biblical study you can do that will make Him love you more than the day you are saved. There is no amount of money you can give. There's no amount of church service you can do to make Him love you the same that He did the day you were His enemy. Because when we were enemies with God, He died for us. There is no amount of Christian service. There's no amount of church services you can go and do to make God love you more than He already did when He gave His life for you. The psalmist would write in Psalm 51, 16 through 17, For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Let's remember here in the context in Micah, this nation is full of leaders who are richer than they've ever been. They are powerful. They are religious. They have prophets. They have the temple. They're even worshiping false gods. They're mixed in with the culture. From our human viewpoint, it looks like they have everything. Yet to the Lord, they have nothing. That's going to come into the rest of this chapter, especially in the very end. And remember what the Lord is saying. What have I done that I don't deserve your heart? What have I done that I don't deserve your obedience? Why is it that you continue to pull away? Why is it that my vineyard, remember in the book of Isaiah, is bringing the wrong fruit? Over and over and over again, the Lord has been raising up prophets and leaders and teachers. And over and over and over again, the nation of Israel does what is right in their own eyes. And the secret is we are no different. That is us. That's who we are. And many Christians have gone astray and that they're trying to please God. You're trying to make Him happy. You're trying to, as I say, buy Him off with whatever it is. Now, the Lord is going to tell us what He wants here in verse 8. And He's going to tell the nation of Israel what He wants. In chapter 6, verse 8, it says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's it. This is going to be our focus for a little while here, verse 8. We, we cannot please Him. We've said that over and over again. 
So He has shown us what is good. For the New Testament believer, for you and I, on this side of grace, not only has He shown us in Scripture, He's shown us with His Son. We watch Jesus Christ and we see what it is to be in a fulfilled life, to please the Lord. He is our focus. He loves us. He knows us. And He tells us in the Hebrews, He goes into more detail, that it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Now, we're going to add some things in here. It is not possible that church service can take away sins. It is not possible that Bible study can take away sins or prayer can take away sins or money or tithing or offer. Nothing can take, what can take away our sins? Only the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop trying to earn His favor. He has shown us the way. He made a way. He gave us His only begotten Son. When it says here, He has shown us the way, I think of Isaac walking up that mountain with his father. Hey, Dad, where's the sacrifice? Oh, the Lord will prepare Himself a sacrifice. Isaac didn't know that he was going to be the sacrifice, but ultimately we know from the story the Lord provided a ram in the thickets. We know ultimately He provided His Son as a sacrifice for us. Remember in chapter 5 of the book of Micah, the The Messiah was already prophesied. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He's going to redeem Israel. He's going to bring us closer to the Lord. And so let's focus on the text here a little bit. He has shown us through Jesus, but then what does He require of us? Verse 8, but to do justly. You see, it's not about just words. We're to do it, but we're also to love mercy. It's not just about actions. And how do we do those things? By walking humbly with the Lord your God. When the creation is reconciled with the Creator is the only way that this is possible. The only way that we can find fulfillment is that Christ came, He made a way, He redeemed our souls, He conquered sin, death, and the devil, He rose from the grave, filled us with the Holy Spirit, and made us a new creation, a new creature. Now, let's get even a little bit deeper. In the Hebrew... This word, walk humbly, humbly, is translated steadfast love, faithfulness, loyalty, mercy, kindness. This word is translated in all those different ways. And you could write it right in there. And walk faithfully with your God. And walk in steadfast love with your God. And walk in loyalty with your God. And walk in mercy with your God. Remember, in us dwells no good thing. If you leave us to ourselves, shoot, we'll sacrifice our own children. Throw enough money at it so I can go live in the darkness where I, where I like it. Remember, the Gospel of John teaches us that men love darkness rather than light, but that Jesus is the light. He shows us. And it's only because of His mercy and Him showing the way and making a way for us to be saved, His grace, that we can do what it says in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's by His mercy and by His grace that we can simply present ourselves to God and allow Him to have His way in us. We can't do anything. What did Jesus tell us? Apart from Him, we can do nothing. 
What do you think no, nothing means in the Greek? Yeah, it means no thing, nothing. Nothing. We can do nothing without Him. We need to remind ourselves that it is the goodness of God that leads man to repentance because we put all these rules and we start judging other people. Oh, that's a good Christian, that's a bad Christian. This is the standard I set. This person is not volunteering. Do they even love God? And we forget. When he sees somebody that accepts Jesus Christ, he sees his son. He sees righteousness. He sees a child of his. We're the ones that add all that extra stuff. And then we add it to ourselves. Oh, I'm bad. I'm good. I'm in the wrong. I'm in the right. I'm holy today. I'm unholy tomorrow. And a friend of mine told me that, incorrectly, that God will love you, but there's strings attached. No, incorrect, from the mouth of a non-believer. There are no strings. There is no religion, no rules. There is nothing you can do. Jesus loves you. He has died for you. If you are a believer and you confess Jesus Christ, your Lord and your Savior, you shall be saved, period. Gay, homosexual, drug addict, prisoner, king, priest, prophet, pastor, whatever you label yourself as or are being labeled as, if you confess Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you shall be saved. And when you were an enemy with Christ, He died for you. And He told us in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. By faith alone in Christ alone, we are saved by faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, you closet Pharisees, and legalists, I'm one of them, so I'm not judging you too hard. You're thinking to yourself, oh, no, he's gone liberal now. He's crazy. But, 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 but the rules, there's rules. You got to keep the rules. You know what it says in Romans chapter 6, shall sin abound so that grace can abound more? Certainly not. I know the verse. I'm with you. You're saved by grace. Now, many people know that verse, but they don't read the rest of the chapter. You see, later on in Romans chapter 6 and verses 12 through 14, it says this. It says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. So, you know, we're given control because we have a new spirit. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. But I want us to focus on verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Too many believers, they want to get rid of that last bit, not under the law, but under grace. We are under grace. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. I am no longer under the law. I don't have to do anything to earn God's love. Now, now. God is not mocked, Galatians chapter 6. That as you sow, that shall you also reap. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a little bit here. But we need to reset ourselves if you think you are somehow earning Christ's love more than another person or vice versa. You're not deserving. But that's for the real Christians, the real religious people. I don't care if you have a robe. I don't care if you say you're Eastern Orthodox, Byzantine, Roman Orthodox, Latin, Roman Latin, Baptist, First Baptist, Fundamentalist Baptist, Primitive Baptist, Calvary Chapel, Calvary Chapel, CGN, CCA. I don't, who cares? We are covered in the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and He has shown us the way. He has shown us that we are to do justly, 
to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God because only He can do that. And so now in verses 9 through 12, the Lord's voice cries to the city, wisdom shall see your name. And this is the Lord's judgment. Hear the rod who has appointed it. And there yet the treasures of wickedness. And the house of the wicked and the short measure that is an abomination. Shall I count pure those with the wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? For her rich men are full of violence. Her inhabitants have spoken lies. And, her t- and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Does that mean they just get away with it? You know, because the grace of God? Oh, no. Oh, no. The issue is that the Lord says, hear the rod. The problem, they felt the rod. They felt the judgment of God, but they, they didn't really hear it. They didn't really hear from the Lord. Now, in the context here, he is the Lord and her is the nation of Israel, specifically Jerusalem. It's figurative. And he's saying he has the rod in the house of the wicked. And then when it says her, verse 12, it's speaking, her men are full of violence, the men of Jerusalem, the leaders. Do you think that the Lord is just going to continue in His love to allow the nation of Israel to rip off orphans, widows, poor, the destitute? No, He's not. And He's going to bring an end to it, and He's going to bring a righteous judgment on Israel and Judah. We said earlier, God is not mocked. That as you sow, that shall you also reap. So let's take it home. What a, does God love a meth addict? Absolutely. If, if call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. If, it, if a meth addict continues to stay in methamphetamine, what will happen to them? Many of us have seen it with our own eyes. It's a dark, long road. But the Lord will never leave nor forsake that person. The same thing with us and our sins. We should present ourselves to the Lord. It should be love that motivates us. Remember, it's the love of God that leads man to repentance, the goodness of God that leads man to repentance. I, I shared earlier, it's the same way that when I got married, because this is the easiest analogy, the Lord uses it in Ephesians chapter 5. You make an oath. We don't have a contract with a bunch of rules. All right, now you're married. You can look at another woman, but only for two seconds. You can't look twice. No touching. You can know their name, but don't know anything about them. And so I go around, you know, looking. Hi, my name's Mike. Okay, I'm going to see you later. Check. <laughs> I'm trying to keep these rules. Or I could just love my wife. And if I just love my wife, you know, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to do dumb things. She tells me every day. But I'm going to keep coming back. And I'm more interested, you know, what is pleasing to her, what is not pleasing to her. And yeah, I'm a filthy sinner. and I, I mess up bad. But at the same time, that correction and that motivation happens. That is our relationship with the Lord. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. We are His bride. He is the groom. He will never leave us nor forsake us. Now, we could do some dumb things. And sometimes you will hear the rod. But He will never leave us or forsake us. And we do not need to earn grace. It's given to us. But what happens when we don't walk in that grace, when we don't walk in the reconciliation with God? We go to the things of this world. What happens? Well, we see in verses 13 through 16, because it says here, Therefore, I will make you sick by striking you, by making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied. Hunger shall be in your midst. You may carry some away but shall not save them. 
and what you do rescue I will give over to the sword. You shall sow but not reap, you shall tread the olives but not anoint yourself with oil, and make sweet wine but not drink wine. For the statutes of Omri are kept, and all the work of Ahab's house are done, and you walk in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing. Well, we talked about those names earlier, right? We talked about Moses and Aaron and Miriam. Uh, We talked about Hezekiah, Isaiah. We talked about Micah, all these righteous people the Lord was lifting up. But here's another list of names, Omri, Ahab. Earlier, he had Balak and Balaam. Omri and Ahab are the two most wicked kings in all of the nation of Israel. Their abominations are unheard of. It was the darkest of the dark. And here the Lord says, you walk in their counsels. And because you walk in their counsels, and because you've turned away from the Lord, and because you're not walking humbly with the Lord your God, because of these things, because of your crimes, therefore, this is what's going to happen. But there's, there's one specific one that I think really speaks to us when it says, you shall eat but not be satisfied. You see, when we go to the world and when we go to the wisdom of the world and the things of this world, separated from our Creator, separated from truth and life, it's like drinking ocean water. You're forever thirsty. You can drink up the whole ocean, you just die. You will never have that thirst quenched. And there you are just going in the world and you're getting more and more and more. Well, what kind of example do we have? You see, Omri and Ahab... And the rulers of Israel, they're richer than they've ever been. They're more powerful than they've ever been. They've looked up to. They're the athletes, the actors, and the politicians all wrapped up into one. And the world's clapping their hand. They're amazing. The Lord's saying, I'm going to wipe them out. They're an abomination. Well, think about Solomon. Solomon was the richest, wisest man that ever lived. He had uh, more women than you could even dream of. And he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 14 through 17, I have seen all the works that are done under the sun. And indeed, all is vanity and grasping for the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be numbered. I, commend, I communed with my heart. He's meditating a little bit, a little Eastern mysticism there. That's a joke, y'all. It's okay. Relax. <laughs> Look, I have attained greatness and have gained more wisdom than all who were before me in Jerusalem My heart has understood great wisdom and knowledge, and I set my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is grasping for the wind. See, when you're not walking with the Lord your God, when you're not reconciled to your Creator, or even if you're just trying to earn it, or even if you think you're just condemned, it's just emptiness, it's vanity. I mean, you could be a great war hero. They could name bases after you. Oh, they'll just change the name of the base later. Put statues about you, get medals, get a walk of fame in Hollywood, whatever it is. How much money does a dead man have? Nothing. Nothing. You see, for the believer, those that are reconciled to God, by grace alone through faith alone, whether you are in the prison or whether you are in the palace, your life has a purpose and all things work together for the good for those that love Him. Because we have an eternity, a millennial kingdom, and then eternity thereafter reconciled to God. Our lives have purpose and meaning. That's how you could be in the prison and still feel like you're in the palace. That's how you can be in a palace with Christ and actually be fulfilled. But without Him, 
Life has no purpose. It's vanity. It's empty. All the wisdom of man, all the knowledge. And so it doesn't matter what end of the spectrum you're on. Maybe you're trying to earn God's grace and His love. He's never going to love you more than He does already. Relax. Maybe you think you're abandoned, you're going to the world, you've turned as far away from the Lord as possible. You're never going to find it. It's like grasping for the wind. But He gave His only begotten Son. He showed us the way in a relationship with God, a real relationship with the real Lord. Is the connection to the Creator to walk humbly with Him. Remember, apart from Him, we can truly do nothing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your grace, Your unmerited, unearned favor. All a call upon the name of You shall be saved in whatever state they are. Help us, Lord, to be Your children. We're called Your church, Lord, but we don't want to be known as Your church. We want to be known as Your children. We want to share You with the world. We want to share You and the things that You've done in us, the grace and the forgiveness and the easy yoke that it is to simply walk in your ways and follow after you as you work in us to do great things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, we got people up here to pray with you. God bless you and have a wonderful day.